Wow. Can, can I just start by saying thanks? Now, I was a week ago in South Florida, 86 degrees, and I got up this morning and I thought, nobody is going to be there. Nobody is going to brave the elements and come on out. But you know, northern Indiana folks, they can do it, you know? One of my children was actually born in Elkhart. So I, a, a thousand years ago, back when the wheel was being created, lived here in Michiana. So uh, I, I, it is good to be back with you. Um, I appreciate so much you taking the time. From, from little villages to big cities around the world, something is about to happen. I want you to know about it. There's been a long time, almost a year, of a sleeping tiger. Something happens when God's people get together and begin to praise. And that was tamped down and quiet for a long time. Not just here, not just this church, all the churches. Not just America, but around the world. And something is about to happen. I promise you, America is going to quake when the church wakes up. And it's just beginning. We're just getting started. And I'm telling you, it's coming. Now, I've been a Bible teacher basically my whole adult life. And mostly what I do is travel around the Middle East and I do how does standing on this spot help you understand these verses better. That's basically what I do in a sentence. And uh, last year, because we had had so many demands on our schedule, my wife and I sold our American home moved over to the Middle East and thought, we don't really need a home. We sold it furnished. And of course, when COVID came, we came back homeless with no stuff and just went on this vagabond trail that we've been on. My, my buddy down here, Roy Kendall, is from Jerusalem. His house is over there, but he's over here and can't get back. This, this is the world we live in right now. So we're all spread out trying to figure out what's next. People keep calling, when's our trip going to be? I have no idea. Do you know what's going to happen next month? Because I don't. What you don't know about your children's school, I don't know about my life. I've watched 40 years of work melted down. So can I just open up God's word this morning and talk for a few moments about what we both know from a small level of annoyance to absolute panic that is the range of emotions believers are feeling right now. I'm going to be talking from Habakkuk. If you're not sure where that is, go to the end of the Old Testament, turn left, and go back a couple books. That well-worn passage of Habakkuk. Now, his name means hugger or embracer. So he's kind of the bleeding heart prophet of the, uh, of the Old Testament. And maybe to set this up, I should tell you that what I want to talk to you about is joy. I don't want to talk to you about happiness. Happiness during a weird time is off the table. I want to talk about joy. I want to talk about something that survives no matter what is going on. I, I want to challenge you never to try and measure the character of God by your circumstances. Because you will not get a clear read on who God is every single day of your life. The Arabs have a saying, umasal umbasal. It means one day honey, one day onions. That's life. Let me set the stage. She was um, serving Jesus for many years in South Florida. She held backyard Bible clubs for kids. And literally for an entire generation of young kids, she was leading people to Christ. She 
one night left the window above her sink open and she went to bed and she forgot to close it. A young, drug-addled, deranged man crawled in that window and abused her for seven hours in the most heinous ways possible. After years of serving Jesus Christ, after years of being valued in ministry, as her pastor, I showed up the next morning and tried to sit down with a woman whose ideas, heart, were shattered. Did you ever feel cheated by God? Did you ever feel like you did your part and then everything fell apart? I'm talking to the mom or dad that made the, the accidental response that a proverb was a promise and they raised up their child as best they could. And guess what? It bit them. I'm not talking about the fluff stuff. Guys, 15% of the Bible is how to find God. John 3.16, how to find God. That through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice alone, you can know and love God and have a walk with him because your sin is cleansed. And we celebrated that in song. But the other 85% of the Bible isn't about that. It's about when you have a walk with him, what then? And Habakkuk is about that. It's about feeling cheated by God. You know, in my lifetime, I have met a lot of people. I've engaged a lot of people who were disappointed because they thought they got sold a bill of goods about what God was going to do in their life, and it didn't happen. See, I, I grew up in the time of Christian films. You remember those? The guy's out there, he's having all kinds of trouble. Then he comes to Jesus, and even his skin clears up. It's amazing. His team wins. We, we quietly put out there, know Jesus and your greens will be greener and your blues will be bluer and Bambi will eat in your backyard because that's all part of just knowing Jesus. Let me ask you something. Is it really that easy? Is that really what you think happens after now you've known him for a while? Or is one day honey and one day onions? And how do I make sense of a good God, a faithful God, a righteous God, a holy God, when some stuff happens? You know, to the man with Limburger cheese on his mustache, the world stinks. Sometimes it's not the rest of the world, sometimes it's actually us. Now, why do we come to believe that God is going to do only good things? I think there's a couple reasons. I think sometimes we have faulty expectations. We were taught or we heard or we dreamed up some idea that Proverbs were promises and everything. We, we quietly wanted an explanation for everything. I grew up after Dr. Spock said, raise your children, but don't ever discipline them unless you explain all the reasons. I don't expect God to do anything in my life without giving me a reason first. And the problem with that is God is God. Did you know that God's not under the impression that he's running for anything? God is God in a room of atheists. He's still God. So sometimes I have faulty expectations. Sometimes I have faulty interpretations of Scripture. You, you get people who say things like, well, God won't give you anything you can't handle. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. 
God says, I want you to live your life dependent on me, which means by nature, you're not going to be able to do this alone. This is a team sport. You're going to need the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and Jesus walking. Just remember this. Jesus loves to dance, but only when he leads. So he's going he's to take you through the day that you allow him to take you through the day on, and sometimes our interpretations are the problem. Listen, you, you study Scripture... And you can't get to the place where you read about Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, and don't recognize that God planned for his life to put him in the misunderstanding with Mary so that he could speak. Sometimes God puts you in a tough spot because that's when you'll listen. Sometimes we have faulty feelings. I mentioned before that we tend to judge God by our circumstance. Sometimes it's, it's a faulty memory. Can we just not stop fooling around and admit right up front? All of us as Americans are disappointed in our country right now. We're disappointed because we actually think we can act better than is being displayed on television. Most of us are nice people. Seriously, we are. We're not radical. We're not trying to burn down anything. We're just trying to get through life, pay the bills, and, and, and have some resemblance of a life that's been taken away by a virus we can't even see. Now, I want to talk about joy, so maybe before I talk much about it, I should mention to you what it is. In the Bible, the definition for joy is, joy is the resolute assurance that God has neither lost interest in me nor the power to deal with my problems. It's the absolute assurance that God is, God sees, God knows, and if I'm in the soup, God's doing something. But I can't always tell what it is. And I am an American. I demand an explanation. I want someone to tell me why. So the key principle I think that you're going to see in Habakkuk as a, as a, as a book is this. Believers have to grab what joy really is. Otherwise, we're chasing after other things we call joy, but they're not joy. Now, when you came to Jesus Christ, you were given several things. You got the Word of God, so it could be a guide to you, the Spirit of God to work within you to, to light it up so you would understand it, and, and you got each other. You're supposed to like that part. You're supposed to smile and feel warm about it. We, we got each other. This is a team sport. We do this together as the body of Christ. And, and joy has to be lived out in the platform of one another. The church doesn't do well. The further we socially distance spiritually, the weaker the church becomes. Now, we've got to do this physical thing for a while, and that's okay. We'll get through it. But what we don't want you to do is all go home to your homes and stay away from each other's hearts. The truth is that a church is only a church if it connects. Otherwise, it's just a show. Guys, if we could do this digitally, Jesus would have sent a video and stayed in heaven. It's a life-on-life -life thing you got to do here. So, I want you to listen to these words. These come from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm getting to Habakkuk. Just give me a minute. i got to go around the barn to get there. But 2 Corinthians 12, listen to these words. Paul's writing to Corinth. It's his second letter. And he writes, Therefore, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I delight 
in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I read that, and I thought to myself, I delight in insults. Really? How do you get to the place where someone drops by social media on Ragebook and throws something at you, and you don't go, what? And you're ready to grenade them with Bible bombs. See, here's the thing. Paul said, I delight in weaknesses. Now, how can Paul, look, I understand you're, you're inspired. I understand the Spirit of God is working in you. How can you delight in weaknesses? That's actually not what it says. The word yodokao is the word, that word for delight is actually the word, I think well of God's goodness. Now put it that, that way. I have learned, Paul says, to think well of God's goodness amidst weaknesses, amidst insults, amidst distress, amidst persecution. I don't measure God's goodness by my circumstances, Paul said. You know what that is? That's a mature believer. A mature believer isn't look, you know, somebody will say, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. What are you doing under the circumstances? You're in Christ. You're not under the circumstances. So it's interesting. It didn't say, Paul, you're not going to face hard things. Guys, I've spent a significant portion of my life following Paul. The guy's the energizer bunny of the New Testament. He goes 10,000 land miles starting churches. And I've been to every place he was. And can I tell you, this is what I learned. If Paul books a boat, get off. They sunk four times. You're not getting there if Paul's on board is what I'm saying. Okay, so here's the bottom line. Paul, I think the third or fourth time he goes down in the middle of the night, he's hanging on to some piece of wood in the Mediterranean Sea. He's going, all right, God, I get the lesson enough with the shipwrecks already. Anybody else feel like that? Where you go, come on, God. I want to take you to a guy from the Hebrew Scriptures who I think tells this story very well. In Habakkuk chapter 1, it opens with these words. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. The very first thing I learn about this book is the setting and nature of the story and the masah, the word burden, the word oracle. This isn't just a normal, this is something I saw and I want to pass it on to you. This word is the complaint I have against God. Did any of you ever buy, there used to be this red box of, um, of like munchies uh, called bugles. Do you know what I'm talking about, bugles? Okay, I got a few nods there, bugles, okay? We're gonna talk about the important things today. Okay, bugles are these little tiny things that, that have like an open circle and come down to a point, okay? That's like a lamentation. In the Bible, one of the seven types of literature in the Bible is a lamentation. And a lamentation starts off with all the feelings, like the big end of the bugle, all the feelings a person has and comes down to the point of what's true. And this begins with a complaint. Did you notice that the verse 1 says that, that this is a pronouncement or this is an oracle, this is something that Habakkuk saw. But the word saw, chazah, is actually he gazed on it, he was transfixed by it. I want you to think about what happens to you when you go to YouTube. 
You start off going, how do I make this recipe? And you end up going, oh, I can make a knife. Wow, that's really cool. And all of a sudden, an hour is gone. Is anybody else with me here? You know what I'm talking about? That's what he says. He says, I was transfixed on what was going on. I could not take my eyes off. And this is what he said. Things weren't going well. In verse 2, he asked the question to God. How long, Lord? Have I called for help and you do not hear? I cry out, violence, but you do not save. He says, God, I got a problem. You got me transfixed looking at something. It ain't fair and you ain't doing nothing about it. What are you doing sitting on your hands? You don't seem to to listen. And if you hear, you don't seem to move to rescue God. What's the problem up there in heaven? Are you unaware of what the news looks like? Now, This book is about one thing maybe you can identify. God, I got a problem with you. You're not doing what I want, when I want, how I want it. Anybody identify with this problem? And all of a sudden he says, I I, I just want to understand. I'm looking at the circumstances and I don't see what I want to see. Here's what's underneath of it. Guys, listen. The single greatest lesson you'll learn as a believer, the single greatest lesson is God really good because if he is then how come my brother is autistic severely because if he is how come my daughter is in a wheelchair at 26 and can't walk across the room if he is how come i worked 40 years at a travel business and watched it melted to slag if your life is going to measure god's character by your circumstances you're going to find that you will keep telling god how he is to be but the first commandment is don't shape me i know exactly who i am so honestly <laughs> habakkuk got to this place where he asked the second question you see it in verse three why do you make me see disaster you make me look at destitution Yes, devastation and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. Therefore, the laws ignore. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out confused. He says, look, it's not so bad that bad things are happening, but the problem is you're making me watch. It's like, it's like people that can't wait to go back to the news so they can be disappointed about the news. But they feed on it. 24-7, coming up next, the new thing that will ruin your life. And it's got bold fonts, and you're going, oh, I must know what will ruin my life tomorrow, for I have not enough problems today. Here's the thing. He says, look, the system you set up in verse 4 of wrong and right, it's not holding up. The, the law's not doing it. Malevolence is winning the day. And underlying this whole thing is this question. It's the big question. Does God have the right to put my life in a place I don't want to be to do what he wants me to do? Ask Job. Ask Job. Let me ask you a an honest question does god have the right to break your leg to put you in an er because he's got a nurse that needs jesus now everyone in the room had two responses absolutely theologically yes and gee i hope not because on the one hand we acknowledge his right and on the other hand we hope he doesn't exercise it you are not this year right now where you planned to be 
For some people, 2020 was their best year ever. Man, they were, they were selling like you get. You, there's a couple of, if you're Amazon, you've you got to smile on those trucks for a reason. And now God responds. Verse 5, we interrupt the regularly scheduled broadcast for a word from your creator. And he says in verse 5, look among the nations. Watch, be horrified, be frightened, speechless. I am accomplishing a work in your days. You would not believe it even if you were told. He says, I, I want you to look at something. Habakkuk, I understand you're upset that your judges are corrupt and your Congress is, oh, we don't even know what they're doing. Well, I get that you're really, but see, off the horizon to the east, I'm raising up an army that's about to wipe them all out. And Habakkuk, like many today, wanted to shut down. See, a lot of believers today, a lot of believers are on the page of, well, I'll just stop watching the news and that will make it better. No, no. What we have to do is see it differently, not stop seeing it. See, when all the good people withdraw from watching, then evil just waxes worse and worse. But when those who know God know how to look at what they're seeing, they see past what is being told them, and they see the people that are saying it not as their enemy, but as enslaved people. Now, what's interesting is Habakkuk verse 6 I, um, on, I, I, I actually put together a slide with some Ke real Chaldean warriors here. And, and, and this is what God said. Behold, I am raising up Chaldeans, that grim and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to take possession of dwelling places that are not theirs. They're terrifying and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and quicker than wolves in the evening. And this is what he says. He says, I'm raising up these people, and the people are grim. The word aroma actually is actually the word for they're all inspiring. When you see them come in, you're going to go, whoo! And it says they're impetuous. That's the word. They command fear. And, and what's interesting is in verse 7, it says their justice and authority originate in themselves. The Hebrew actually says they swell up their own reputation. In other words, they got their own PR machine. And everywhere they go, look how fast they are. Look how fierce they are. Look how far they've come. They're coming to a village near you. And Habakkuk is looking at this. In verses 9 and 10 and 11, he says, they're going to sweep in here and then they're going to declare their own gods and they're going to declare your God is weak and their God is strong and they're absolutely wrong, but they're going to win. So God's answer to Habakkuk is, God, you're not, you're not fair. You're not, you're not stopping evil. He said, I'm about to stop this evil with a worse evil. I am working. Now, I think you probably already know Habakkuk's response. Habakkuk's response is, this is horrifying. You mean there's a virus worse than the one we have? Are you kidding me right now? Like, this hasn't disrupted my high school career enough? We got, we got people who are incredibly talented who are missing the window of their talent in life because two years will be taken away from them. How is that right? Habakkuk says, God, I don't get it. You're going to use worse people to fix bad people? Now, here's the point. 
Beloved, God is fully aware of your needs. The Bible is replete with examples. God is aware of your needs. And God understands. But I need to break a word to you that comes from the living God. He is not under any sense that he needs your approval to pull off his plan. And while we've been so busy for a couple of decades making Jesus my friend, we must understand he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and all things will bow before him. I studied, I taught for 20 years in a Bible institute, Great Commission Bible Institute. You can go online, you can see all the lectures, they're all free. And I, I taught all the way through 1,189 chapters of the Bible and I'm the geek who counts, okay? 1,100, you know what, you know what I found? When we get to heaven, heaven has a lot of things, but it doesn't have one thing. A complaint department. Because when you sit in front of the one whose eyes are a blaze of fire, you will not go, excuse me, I think I had a better plan to offer. When, when you see the nexus of things God is working right now, you will understand that he knows what you don't. And that's what I can count on. Now, God is moved. One of the things about God is when you, when you really question him, but you follow him, he doesn't zap you into a pile of ashes, which is the way it would be if I was writing the story. <laughs> but, but rather what he does is teach. Look at verse 12. God responds. His first response is Habakkuk is looking up at God, and he's absolutely blown away by what he's heard. So he decides, I need to question you again. Are you not from time everlasting, Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You should put a question mark in your Bible. We're not going to die, are we? You, Lord, have appointed them to deliver judgment. You, O rock, have destined them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look at harm favorably. Why do you look favorably at those who deal treacherously? Do you hear what he's doing? He's doing what believers do. He's talking God into theology that matches what he wants it to be. God, you said you can't look at evil, so how are you letting those evil people deal with these evil people? Listen, if God in the abstract could look at no evil, he could see none of us. And here's what you can't do. You can't, get, you can't quiz God on being God. Job tried. God's response to Job was, I'd tell you, but you'd never get it. You don't know the question, let alone the answer. You see the dead animal, I see the hungry vulture. I've got an entire nexus of things I'm running here and you don't know what they are. So, verse 15, he's talking to God and he's saying, God, I don't understand your judgments. If they're so desperately evil, how are you going to look on them? In fact, in verse 14, he said, you've made them like people like a fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rule over them. You put a stir inside the creation. What are you doing, God? And verse 15 says, the Chaldeans bring all of them with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are joyful. These people come, they are victorious everywhere they go, and you don't seem to be stopping them. Why are you letting them scoop up one nation after another, and you're going to bring them here? Can't you see their idolatrous behavior? Can't you see that they're worse than what I'm complaining about? 
All I really want, God, all I really want is approval of when you act, how you act, and who you use. Other than that, you can be God, and I'll be a believer. How's that? Did anybody, seriously now, did anybody ever have that attitude with God? God, if you'll just, you know, be accountable to me for why you're asking me to do this, I'll be happy to do it. Listen, following Jesus as your Lord does not mean I will follow you whenever you're going to a destination I already wanted to go to. It doesn't become hard until it's a destination you didn't want to go to. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, when's this going to end? How how far will you let this go? Then he gets indignant. Listen to this. I want you to... Think about that indignant child that's demanding from the parent. He says, I will stand at my guard post. I will station myself on the watchtower. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how I may reply when I am reprimanded. He says, I know I am not right in my heart, but I want an answer and I want it now. And I'm going to stand here till you give me one. Guys, I pastored three churches. There's a cry that you'll hear when a mom is lowering a casket into the ground of her child. And if you hear that cry, you will never mistake that cry for any any other cry. It is the only cry like that cry. And I want you to know that I'm not playing with this. It's hard when God calls on you to do hard things. And it's hard when you feel like you've done right things and wrong things are coming back at you. And Paul said, I learned not to judge God badly, but to think well of him in spite of that. That's hard. He says, I'm expecting an answer, and I'm going to stand here till you give it to me. Can I just make a recommendation? Fighting with an omnipotent God is not terribly wise. By the way, there's a corollary to that. Trying to hide things from an omniscient one, you look like an idiot, okay? Stop. He knows who you are. So here's the bottom line. If I trust the character of God, I leave the scope of the problem and the limits to him. I don't say, God, I can do this for another month, but if you go one month beyond that, I'm done. God says, yeah, well, there'll be at least two more after that. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to say God is not good. He is. I'm not trying to say he's not, he doesn't love. He does. Joe Stoll, when he went to move to Chicago, said uh, he had moved from a place that didn't have any water, and Chicago has lakes, and his son was eight years old, and he knew he would drown in a lake because he loved the water, but he couldn't swim. So he took him to the local YMCA. He said in Chicago, the YMCA had a big glass wall for the parents to stand back there. And there's his little skinny-bodied eight-year-old kid in this little tiny bathing suit standing there shivering. And some big, muscly YMCA employee walked up, smacked him on the back, and sent him in six feet of water, flying. Sun goes, flash down in the water. He's, he comes over to the side. He's he's choking. Water's coming out. He's going, dad. He said, I'm pressed against the glass going, what are you doing to my son? And the guy reaches down, no lie, picks him up and throws him out in the middle again. And the kid comes up, dad. And he said, for the first time, I understood what my father in heaven is doing. 
Son, I'm trying to save your life. So I'm putting you through trouble so that you can build the resistance and the understanding of what you need to do so that when the real trouble comes, you'll stay alive. And it looks cruel, but it's not. It's done in love, and it breaks the heart of any father who loves their skinny little eight-year-old kid. God's second reply to Habakkuk is down in chapter 2, verse 2. I love this. Now, listen, it says... The Lord answered me and said, write down the vision and inscribe it clearly on tablets so that one who reads it may run. That is not how I would have translated that Hebrew. What it actually says is so that one who runs may read it. That's how it translates. You know what I think he's saying? Read my lips. I'm going to write this so big that when somebody's running by, they can catch the billboard. God says, I'm not hiding from being God. I'm not embarrassed about being in charge. I'm not under the impression that I'm really on the road. Listen, God is not on the ropes and Satan pounding him right now. And he's up there saying, please don't hurt me. This is done when God says, enough. This is done when he says so. The God who spoke and there was light and made one quintillion stars is not on the ropes on coronavirus. He's not working up a sweat on Congress. They'll make us nuts. Did you know that the word that's not in God's dictionary, it's not anywhere in God's dictionary, is surprise? When you're omniscient, there are no surprises. Everything that's happening, where you are, what's happening in your life, is not a surprise to him. So he says, write it down, write it big. He says in verse 3, even if it delays, wait for it, it's going to come. It may delay, but it's going to come. And then he says something important in verse 4, because you know this verse, because you quoted this verse. Behold, as the impudent one, his soul is not right within him. That's not the part you quoted. But the righteous one will live by faith. The just shall live by faith. What does that mean? Unpack it. Faith in the Bible is God glasses. It's seeing it the way God says it is in his word, a biblical worldview of the situation. Not the way my eyes would see it if I took the glasses off. Faith is about seeing it through God's eyes. And the one who walks with God views the situation on the news not as people see it without God, but as people see it through the glasses of a biblical worldview. That's how the righteous live. If you ask Noah or Abraham or David or Paul, they would all say their contemporaries said, if there was a God, he would act. But, but they knew God and they said, there is a God and he is acting. Beloved, if you know Jesus Christ, pull back from the panic. Stop. It's not out of his control. It was never in your control. Nothing's in your control. My dad died a couple of years ago, but before he died, he said to me, son, by the end of life, it's all about plumbing. There's only a few of you that got that. That's okay. Here's the bottom line. You're not in control of anything by the end. Nothing. And God's never been out of control of any of it. So here's the bottom line. <laughs> he says, concerning the Chaldeans, I verse 5, chapter 2, uh, the, 
Furthermore, wine betrays an arrogant man so that he does not achieve his objective. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he, and he is like death, never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations, collects to himself all the peoples. Will all of these not take up a song of ridicule against him, even a saying and insinuations against him? God says, listen, I get who they are. You think I'm using the Chaldeans and I don't know who they are? By the way, I'm God and I know them on a subatomic level. So what do you got? I know exactly who they are, and I happen to know that even the people they're scooping up will one day knife them in the back. There are no allies like conquered ones. And he says, they're going to walk around, and people are going to sing about them. They're going to sing these five woes. Now, I don't know if you know anything in Hebrew, but here's a good old Hebrew word. The word woe that shows up five times in chapter two is the word oi. Oi. And in verse 6, he says, Oi, to the one who increases what is not his and makes himself rich with debts. Guys, listen to me. Reddit is proving that we are building an economy on bubbles on bubbles. That it's all being driven by false markers. Listen carefully. As a believer, you should be concerned that if there are 600 beds in the hospital, there are 600 prices for them. We are increasingly, as Americans, moving to a false economy based on whatever we can get from whoever we can get it. And that's not real. And God says, that won't work. Oy! And the Chaldeans were doing it, and the Chaldeans are dust now. That should tell us something. He says in verse 9, Oy! To him who makes evil profit for his household to put his nest on high to be saved from the hand of catastrophe. He says literally, people who brutalize other people to build wealth so that they can put a big fence around them and they can somehow protect themselves, that won't work. Do you know that 2020, America's wealth passed to the smallest number of families ever since the beginning of our country? A small number of families are accumulating most of the wealth, and the rest of us are losing it. That's what's happening, and it won't work. I get down to verse 12. Woe to him I, who builds a city with bloodshed, founds a town with violence. It's indeed from the Lord of armies that people's labors merely for fire, and the nations become weary for nothing. He says, listen, in Injustice and cruelty will abound in a society where people are just using greed as its base primer and its base ethic. And he said, that's not going to stand. A morally bankrupt nation can't continue. And then he says at the end in verse 14, God won't let the evil stand. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. God is not off the planet. He says, you've got time, but then I step in. Verse 15, Oi, to him who makes his neighbor drunk, to you who mix in your venom, even to make your neighbors drunk so you can look at their genitalia. He says, if you want to be a nation of pushers and pimps, it's going to come back and bite you. And finally, he goes down to the end of the chapter, and there's a picture I want you to see. If I could take you to Judea right now, I would take you to 
a place where you could see this happen. Look at verse 19. It says, Oi, to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake to a mute stone, arise! That is your teacher! Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there's no breath inside at all. Listen to me. We are watching a society carefully sculpt a God of its own making. I used to think it weird when you'd go into the Hebrew scriptures and they'd say the Edomites and the Ammonites built their God. So did the Americans. He's the mush God. He's the one that blesses America when we're right and when we're wrong. He's the one we can vote out of all of our schools, but he'll still be there for our economy. He's the one who's warm and soft and hallmark. He always loves us. He's the God of America. We have sculpted him carefully. And when our back is to the wall, people will stand on the steps of the Congress building and cry out for God. And he won't be there because that's not the God of the Bible at all. That's not the God our fathers founded the nation on. When they said we hold these truths to be self-evident, they knew what they were talking about when they talked about God. In my view, the last verse of chapter 2 is the first verse of chapter 3. So if you just kind of move the numbers up for a minute, it starts with going to the Judean desert. My kids used to go camping there. It's a wonderful place. But the Judean desert is dry, hence the term desert, right? In verse 20, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. Every now and then, a storm doesn't come from the Mediterranean to the east. It comes from the south, from the desert. It seems weird to get a storm that comes from a desert south. By the way, the older George Bush was reading this passage the morning he chose Operation Desert Storm. That's where it comes from. A storm that comes up from the south. Now, that'll help you in Trivial Pursuit, but that's the only place you'll ever use that. Okay, but, the, but my point is, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigianot. Shigianote is something like this. Ah! That's Shigianote. It's only used twice in the Bible. It's the emo screamo portion. And it's in there. It's in the Psalms. It's, there are times when God says, what you should see when you see me coming is, ah! Lord, I've heard this report about you. I was afraid. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. In anger, remember mercy. Listen, this is the guy who was sticking his fist in God's face going, you're not doing anything. Now he sees something and he goes, God, um, in your anger, could you like remember mercy, please? What did he see? He saw a storm. Verse 3, God comes from Timon. The Holy One comes from Mount Paran. The only thing you need to know is they're coming from the south. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. Rays are flashing from his hands. And there's a hiding of his might. What is he saying? I saw the clouds grow dark, cover the sky, and flashes came out of them. He's standing in the desert. He's watching a storm come. And then he says, he says, before him goes a plague. Did, did you ever park your car in a Walmart parking lot in the summertime? And you open the car door, and when you open it, a hot wind comes out like, that's this word plague. Before him, a hot wind blows like a hairdryer. That's what happens before a desert storm comes. It pushes the heat up. 
He looked and caused the nations to jump. The everlasting mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His paths are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tents and the curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your rage against the sea that rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? He says, listen, did you ever see people just before a rain at a picnic? Everybody starts running around, Tupperware's flying, everybody's like, get, get inside, get inside. And the, and, the, and the tents on the tarps and canopies start going on. He's seeing this coming. It's coming, it's coming hard. But in Judea, the, the pictures of Judea are when the water hits that dry ground, it breaks the mountains and pushes them into the sea. And every single year, people die on the first rain in Judea. It'll sweep away the goats, the sheep, the tents, cars, buses. We've been in it several times. I've been in this more than once. Smart people don't go down there when it's raining in the mountains because it's coming to the desert. And he says, God, verse 9, you, you removed your bow from its holder. The arrows of your word were sworn. God, you divided the earth with rivers, the mountains. You saw you and quaked. The downpour of the water swept by. Verse 12 says, you marched through the earth in anger. You trampled the nations. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people. Verse, verse 13 ends, you smashed the head of the house of evil to uncover him from foot to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of the leaders. They stormed in to, to scatter us. Verse 15, you trampled on the sea. He says, God, I'm watching this powerful thing and I'm going, oh my God, please remember mercy. Every now and then, a very powerful God has to let you know that Congress doesn't vote on him at all. That there is no voice equal to his. That when he says go, it goes, and when he says stop, it stops. Listen to me. God can open a door for you that no man can open. And when opened, no man can close. God is not waiting on the plan. He has one. He has from the beginning. So verse 16 says, I saw this and I quivered. At the sound, my lips quivered. My decay entered my body. I was sitting there shivering, watching the power of God, the sheer awesome power of God. And then I got the lesson. Then I got the lesson. Verse 17 says, you know, if the fig tree doesn't blossom... If there's no fruit on the vines, if the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, even if the flock disappears from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, I get it. Look what he said. Fig, grape, olive, flocks, herds. He just did the entire economy of ancient Israel. He said if Everything, everything, everything I've worked so hard for is destroyed. Verse 18. Yet I will triumph. The word Allah is I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice. Gil. I will make joy exuberant outbursts in the God of my rescue, in the God of my salvation. What will I do? I will sing. I will rejoice. You know why? Because joy is the resolute assurance that God has neither lost interest in me nor the power to deal with my problems. 
And when I understand what joy is, I understand that he's not measured by circumstance. He's measured by his character. The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like the ibex, like these wild goats, like these deer that are on the high places. I walk around there like nothing. Why? See, when you're put on a high place, it means you see the same troubles everybody else does, but you see it from a different perspective, high above. Guys, listen. Don't shut off the news. Change where you're sitting. Ask yourself, how does this current situation now put into play what Jesus would have me do in my life? If it's going to get harder, and beloved, it's going to get harder. You're, you're going to see legislation that is going to turn your stomach. It's going to happen. It doesn't matter which... We're walking around in this country thinking that one party or the other will solve it. That's not where the problem is. It's on a spiritual level. They don't even know what they're doing. All I'm telling you is regardless of who does it, you're going to be sitting there going, that's just wrong. That, how could you even? That's just wrong. That's not fair. That's not tolerant. That's stupid. Did anybody else say that at all so far? Because what I'm telling you is when that happens, instead of being enraged, step back and go, God, you just put a ball in play. How am I to play it? What is it we're supposed to do as a church? What is it I'm supposed to do as a believer? How do we meet this new challenge? And all the while, God, know this. I trust you. I know you know what you're doing. I just don't. And so that's a little frustrating. But I'm so glad, God, that when, even when I'm frustrated, you already know that. So I'm just going to rejoice like you know what you're doing because you know what you're doing. Because I see it the way you said it is, not the way it looks without it. Does that make sense? That's joy. Oh, Father, this morning we turn to you and we ask that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. That you would take frustration and replace it with joy that you would give us the sense that you are on the throne, you are at work, you do know what you're doing. I can rest in you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Oh God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust you when I understand. Help me to trust you when I don't. Help me to trust you when, I, when things are bright and happy. And help me to trust you when they look dark and the storm clouds roll in and I'm looking at the sheer power of, of your hand just knowing that all of it, all of it is tempered by your love, your holiness, your righteousness, your goodness. Oh God, you are good. All the time you are good. When I'm frustrated, you are good. I bow my knee to you and not to any other. And live and breathe to serve my king. And that's my greatest joy. In Jesus' name, amen.